So we're here today. We got Dan in the house. We got Nika, Zola Jesus in the house. And we need to begin with an apology for platforming a vile character in the past. You know, who would have known that uh, Madison Square Garden owner James Dolan, we think of CEOs as such uh, outstanding and upstanding members of the community. Who would have known that he would have been involved with Harvey Weinstein? Huh. We just thought he was a great blues rock cover band guy. Yeah, I mean, Reservoir Dogs was great. (laughs) Pulp Fiction was great. Harvey Weinstein hung out with those guys. Yeah. How are we to know? And Madison Square Garden is basically like, you know, the coolest punk venue, right? It just happens to be really big. So, of course, we're going to think this guy is cool. He puts on cool shows all the time. He puts on LCD sound system. All his employees love to come see his show. Yeah. They call it the White Apollo Theater. Yeah. <laughs> I'm remembering now his band is called JD and the Straight Shot. Ugh. It's a blues band. <laughs> is it blue? It's blue. Of course. It's always blue. And every time we it's bring it up, blue. it makes me think of the Simpsons episode where they're in the future and Smithers is getting the, the shot that makes him straight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I think of when I hear the straight shot. Didn't we, when we watched his music, didn't he have like a music video where they were in a church and he just like paid all these people to be a part of it and everything? It's very self-serious. Kind of that's just like, he's uh, one of those, exactly. those, that's those just perfectly like, dumb boomers. He's got two, his eyes are actually too sad for blues music. It's true. <laughs> Paying people to be in a church is like, you two already did that with Rattle and Hum when they filmed the music video for Angel of Harlem, you know? People hated that. <laughs> People got so mad at them when they did that shit. When they were like, we're so kind of the musical Martin Luther King. <laughs> like Martin Luther King was basically Irish. We're going to take him. If you want to, if you're a musician and you feel like engaging with the blues and you want to like a blueprint uh, for what not to do, watch U2's Rattle and Hum. And especially watch the part where uh, Bono annoys B.B. King to the point where he just stops talking to them. <laughs> Yeah, it's a shame how far they fell from uh, the Joshua Tree. Yeah, the blues guys that were alive in 1989 were not the best blues guys. No, <laughs> like I don't want to disrespect BB King, but you know, I whatever. It's the electric blues man. That's why they hated on uh, Bob Dylan for it. I would rather talk to Howlin' Wolf. Yeah, like a lot of those guys exactly. that were they were just dead by then. Muddy Waters was dead. Sonny Boy Williamson, all the Chicago guys. I think. Um, you're saying you're more of a traditional bluesman. I kind of like all of it, honestly. Like up to the electric blues. Like Stevie Ra- Stevie Ray Vaughan will make me throw up. That's not blues. I think. I mean, yeah. maybe James Dolan thinks so, but yeah, he the electric does. flag. I think is where James it Dolan definitely, definitely. He hasn't heard anything before <laughs> Stevie Ray Vaughan. I'm sure. And he learned about blues going to like BB King's restaurant in Times Square. <laughs> you do kind of have to appreciate yeah, the exactly. blues with the knowledge that it sucks. Like, yeah, it's not that's good. Fair. That's it sucks. the whole point, yeah. man. It's horrible. It's all the same chord progression. It's terrible. The worse, but also, the better. It's kind of the fun more to deranged, to. the better. Yeah. Why do these guys all start blues bands? Why, why does every uh, billionaire executive need to default to blues? Like, why are none of them starting funk bands or uh, post-punk bands? Or, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's James Dolan's old enough... He could start a post-punk band. Yeah, he could po- start, post-punk's I, been around for so long now. He could start a band that sounded like uh, the first three Dinosaur Jr. records, but instead he's he's starting a blues band, you know? I think maybe like Alex was saying, the fact that everything's the same progression and shit makes it so much easier. Like, it's hard to sound like Dinosaur Jr., but it's easy to sound like... That's something that yeah. I was actually thinking about recently. Like, the way I make music it's so idiosyncratic and it's so it's complex in a way that I could really only do in a DAW, just programming shit on MIDI and playing it on piano. And if I tried to get a band to play it, it would just be such an uphill battle because you're like teaching people how to play these like needlessly complex parts. And like, it's sort of like a narcissistic vision of control where you have to bend people to your will. And then you start to like doubt your own artistic vision because there's so much, uh, like negative pressure coming from other people having to learn it. And it kind of makes sense why people, yeah. when they're in a band where people just don't give a shit really, why they would just be like, let's play 12 bar blues for 40 minutes. Cause you That's don't have true. to teach. It's really shit. just for, mm-hmm. 
It's just for dudes who want to rock, like exclusively. You just yeah. want to rock. You don't want to think about anything. You don't want to feel anything. You just want to rock. You want to be there. You want to be playing that 12-bar blues. You want to feel like you're on stage. You want to be on stage. It's the quickest way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, Anthony Blinken's you even take a, a, solo. a clearer yeah. example. Like James Dolan seemed to have like a wider range of covers, but it's really funny that Anthony Blinken just plays the same fucking covers again and again at the State Department thing for all these foreign dignitaries who it's have to fucking knows. listen to him and his friends, you know? It's definitely all he knows. Yeah, like, I hate that. It he is the always does Coochie Coochie Man. He only does that one song. And the thing about the blues is you could substitute any song. You could sing like 90% of Muddy yeah. Waters' catalog over that same backing track. Yeah, And he just yeah. doesn't want to. He will not do it because... Because that means uh, remembering more lyrics. And he knows the lyrics to Hoochie Coochie, man. He's done it a million times before. I mean, I just, I think about, like, imagine being the minister of the interior for, like, uh, like uh, a political group that recently won a revolutionary struggle. And you fly to Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> And they're like, welcome. I think conversely, though, like, who's Here's the, this guy? Like, who's the longest serving um like dignitary who's just heard it so many fucking times like i don't know like the the you know representative sergey lavrov maybe yeah yeah exactly he's just heard this shit every year now and it's like come on man yeah the president of uzbekistan yeah yeah exactly it's like not hoochie coochie not the shit again or someone who's like not super familiar with english having that song explained to them yeah hoochie coochie It's such a weird one to do. Cuche, I don't get it. Cuche. Do Rolling Stone Blues. <laughs> the Rolling Stones covered it on their last album. I think he should do What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. That should be the song he does. Mm-hmm. That would be beautiful. And he should that do the voice. Very beautiful. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know. My only concluding thought for this is that James Dolan, you're hereby banned from the show. We did all this nice stuff for him, promoting his music and listening to his shitty blues cover band to make fun of him. And now it turns out he's been involved with Harvey Weinstein the whole time. Why did we give him a platform? You know, that's Black on us, listed. I guess. I just assume that CEOs are are sterling, you know? Who would have thought? We got to do better. You yeah. Know? This is our vow to do better and stop platforming CEOs unless we think it's funny to do it. Also, maybe we should get rid of all arenas. Maybe all arenas are mm-hmm. just like housing abusers and maybe they need to be stopped. Arenas are the houses of the devil. There is something sort of evil about it. There's something very decadent. It's too much power for one space. It reminds you of the that Coliseum. Energetic. That's right. Totally. It's like an egregore. It needs to be stopped. Death to the arenas. And They're, the bad death sounds. To the arena. They're decadent in the most boring like American ways too, where it's just where Sterile. you can pay $28 for like a 25 ounce beer or whatever, like some weird plastic cup that's like a huge size. Yeah, it's we like don't even have the violence the that they have in the UK. Yeah. We need to replace every arena with an amphitheater. Amphitheaters are good. Arenas are bad. And it should be good things happen in amphitheaters. True. No more closed domes. For instance, some. No more closed domes. No more closed domes. No more domes. (laughs) Open the domes. We want to see the sky. We want to breathe the air. We want to listen to the folk stylings of a band like Hozier or uh, what's another band I saw in an amphitheater? Weezer, for instance. You open know, the dome. Like, that's open the dome. Actually, the one time I ever saw Weezer, it was also in an amphitheater. They know what they're doing, you know? Exactly. If you're in an amphitheater, chances are you're about to see a great show and have a fun time and drink a reasonably priced beer. Um, if you're in an arena, God help you. You yeah. know? They've got their they've got their centurions, the security. We're probably going to ask you for your uh, like what what floor and level you're on, what your seat assignment is. So let the people go free. Let them mingle. Yeah, yeah my seat yeah. assignment is personal. They don't even kill Christians things. anymore. It's like a tiny yeah, nation. True. There's so many people that can fit into some of those, like twenty thousand in a an arena. Maybe that's more of like a stadium. But that's like that's as many people that live in my town. That's too much power for one man. <laughs> too much power. The domes are bad. I mean, there's a big dome here in uh, in New Orleans called the Superdome, and we all know what happened there. So yeah, it caused yeah, it was Hurricane a safe Katrina. haven for for the most vulnerable <laughs> people of all time, and they loved it, and it was fun because it wasn't yeah, wet. Exactly. No, it wasn't wet at all. It was dry. Well, maybe we got to move on to another staple of the show here, Nathan Masri. 
There's been some interesting developments in the last week here. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. Maybe we should start right in with the recipe book. Uh, yeah. Nathan started offering the Garfield Eats recipe book on Twitter. He had a very interesting claim that it's $20,000 worth of recipes. Where do you think he got that number from? Well, I'm thinking that that's how much money he put into some kind of development when he opened the restaurant. But like, I hope he didn't pay $20,000 for these recipes because now that we've taken a look at them, it's sort of perplexing. Yeah. So, so we have eyes on, on the recipe book. We, we have a copy of the recipe book. And I'm using book in the loosest sense possible because what this is, is a, Charles, what is it? It's a docx.pdf Yeah, file. that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks to, uh, I think it's uh, the, P-Time on the Discord. We were apprehensive about sending money yeah. to Nathan Masri's PayPal. Okay, the way he was selling this docx.pdf is you PayPal him money and then in like a week later, he'll email it to you. And I was like, I don't know if he's actually going to follow through. It's so luckily, ridiculous. a listener was willing did. to risk the money and do it, and he followed through. So we do have the recipes now. And I mean, Dan, you and me were talking about it of like, it's so fucking confusing. The secret sauce, the, the instructions tell you well, to use canned tomatoes that aren't listed in the ingredients. And it mentions truffle oil is not in the ingredients. And then it ties into John Arbuckle sauce somehow, like... I've de- I've decoded this part. Um, so the the recipe book itself is not a recipe book. It is literally just the document that um, the poor suckers who ended up working in the brick and mortar Garfield Eats restaurant in restaurant I don't know that ended up working at Garfield Eats in Toronto. It's their kitchen bible. So it has recipes which are totally confusing, like you said, that make no fucking sense. And then it also has food storage tips, which are very wrong and potentially dangerous. (laughs) And I was kind of, I was kind of like correlating. uh, So one of the food, uh, food storage tips is he gives a recipe for um, what he calls, I believe, Garfield chicken, which is just chicken, sage, lemon juice, and pepper, which sounds disgusting. Oh yeah, Garfield is famously Um, a sage fan. (laughs) This is raw chicken fucking raw chicken and and there's a note in italics at the bottom that says if stored in the fridge this should be good for up to 25 days which is not <laughs> no. true you can't keep- no that's <laughs> maniacal so I was looking- he's trying to kill people <laughs> I know so I looked at that and obviously he's like he's like I gotta save money Garfield Eats has to turn a profit and I looked at some Yelp reviews where like eight at Garfield Eats feel like I've been poisoned. And I think I maybe know why. Man, it's because a shame there's that, that uh, and then there's <laughs> It's a shame that the restaurant was open while Gordon Ramsay was on a hiatus from doing kitchen nightmares. I would have loved to see Gordon Ramsay tear that place apart, you know? Yeah. He did the real life yeah. version of when uh, Peggy Hill had the uh, the newspaper column about cleaning and she told people to mix bleach and ammonia <laughs> yes. together. And then she had to like run early in the morning and collect all the newspapers from people's driveways. Yes. And Charles, you're totally right about the sauce thing. So the, 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 uh, astute listeners will probably recognize like the, the Garfield pizza sauce is a disturbing shade of orange. And I think the way that he gets that is by combining something he calls the, the secret sauce or the special sauce. Um, which references truffles, but doesn't have truffles in the ingredients. He combines that with the John Arbuckle sauce, which is a marinara sauce that has honey in it. God, there's honey in a lot of the recipes too. The sauce looks like you would immediately yeah. gird it back up. Like it wouldn't even make it down to your stomach. It would, it would be like there's a spring in your throat. You would just immediately feel heartburn come back up. Yeah. We've also decoded the Garf- Garfuccino, um, which... Should I save the Garfuccino for the stream? Oh, no. We, well, I mean, or should I, I think we can explain it now and then we can attempt to make it on the stream. But uh, yeah, how, okay. how does it get the I'm orange color? The, it's simple, really. Uh, orange juice. Oh. So uh, the, Garfuccino, <laughs> the Garfuccino is an equal parts mix of espresso, milk, and orange juice. <laughs> milk and orange juice. That's like the food yeah, version man. of bleach and ammonia. 
I'm also not convinced that it's going to create that orange of a color, you know? No, it'd be kind of yellow. No, like most orange so. juice is not really orange. It's kind of yeah. yellowish. The outside of an orange is orange. Especially when you mix it with milk. Yeah, milk. It's just going to be, ugh. I'm very it's, excited it's to see how it's probably going to look like cum. Like, that is the one thing. <laughs> that's the one food product that is kind of missing from this. There's lasagna, obviously. That's the obvious one. But we've all seen that comic where... John takes the sip of the mug and then it turns out to be dog cum. <laughs> where she says you're going to give birth to a litter of puppies after he drinks from the mug. And it's like not <laughs> clear what it is. And I guess this just is that. It's like a weird off-white yellow yeah. liquid in a mug. It's a deep cut Garfield reference, you know? Yeah, that's a real strip. Is there any precedent, is there any precedent for citrus and milk? Like in a... Uh, I guess there's like orange creamsicle. There's that sort of thing, but that's uh, that's all fake flavors. Like milk and orange juice, that's a horrible combination. I remember drinking that as a kid. It's like Pepto-Bismol almost. Not mixed together. You get the heartburn from the the orange juice, and then you drink the milk to like calm it down. Right, right. They would always show on TV, you have a balanced breakfast with a big glass of orange juice and then cereal with milk, and you would have those, and it would make you ill. Yeah, that's a good point. Then a big muffin, yeah. too. Big big dry brand muffin. And a couple shots of espresso. They're trying to make kids yeah. go to school, immediately take a big dog shit in the school bathroom. <laughs> Stopping up the works. But yeah, that's where we're heading with this is now that we have our hands on the recipes and all the drinks and everything, we need to do sort of uh, maybe like a semi-Iron Chef-like Twitch stream in the coming weeks where Dan has volunteered to make some of these recipes live on stream. And we'll have a few people taste test them and give, maybe we'll give some scores on it. uh, Iron chef style. But I think looking at what a mess that recipe book is, I think you got to just do your best and hope for the best, but I don't think there's a way to save the garfuccino. I I got to work. I got my work cut out for me. You know, it's like, it's going to be like trying to summon an elder god with like the, uh, you know, like a bunch of uh, notes that are the ravings of a madman. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably going to botch, botch the ritual. Something terrible <laughs> is going to happen. Not to me. Yeah, it's like a grimoire. I'm not any of this. Yeah. <laughs> it is a grimoire. Yeah. <laughs> Garfield's it's the book grimoire. Evil it's the, <laughs> Garfield's grimoire. It is the book of Evil Dead. Or you're going to find like a Garfield's paw that you can make wishes on. Yeah, I'm going to pull the Garfield pizza out of the oven and it's going to create like a terror to the hell dimension from uh, Event Horizon. (laughs) Yeah, with all that in mind, I was kind of interested to see what Nathan Masri is up to lately. And it seems like his Twitter is so baffling lately where he's just kind of giving you news updates like radio and podcast giant. Odyssey has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy as it tries to restructure its $1.9 billion debt load. Zero likes, zero any engagement of any kind. All right. He tweeted, I don't care about GTA 6. Nothing like the 90s. What? (laughs) I guess guess he means uh, like 90s video games. I thought for some reason he thought that GTA 6 took place in the 90s and he was seeing the trailer and it was all modern cars and cell phones and stuff and like <laughs> it's like uh tiktok parodies and was like this is not the 90s are you serious but even like his intended meaning he's like trying to do like clickbait but no one's clicking yeah put doing a hashtag where you just say i don't care fuck you yeah <laughs> i'm into shit like garfield that's cool god all this shit is so weird okay from a like a week ago it takes one man to destroy humanity i'm looking at why that. hasn't happened yet Right now. Yeah. <laughs> if it's that easy, someone should have done it like a thousand years ago. That's right. Some people just can't think big, and big is spelled capital B, lowercase i, capital G. Hmm. <laughs> Trailers in hashtag Hollywood must be 30 to 60 seconds only. I ditched many hashtag movies after watching a two-minute trailer. Bad for business. Does that mean he walked out? What? He walked <laughs> out walked of a out movie in the, the trailers? <laughs> You just paid like the, the trailer months. before this movie is much too long for me. I'm out. <laughs> so he paid to watch advertisements. Also, okay, if you want a sixty <laughs> yes. second ad or a trailer, they're going to show you two instead of one two minute trailer. You're not going to save time. You're just going to see more. They're going to waste just as much of your time. Just look at your phone for five minutes. Yeah, 
Also, I think you understand that's what you signed up for when you go to the theater. Like he like expects everyone to storm out with him or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's pretty easy to see movies now. Like they come out three weeks later or something like that on YouTube. You can just pay the fifteen dollars to watch it on your computer. Then you can you don't have to watch any ads. You can go to the bathroom whenever you want. I don't think he's that much of a movie guy. That's so weird. I'm imagining like you can't going be mo- to the movies movie with guys him. Lo- yeah, movie guys love trailers. Almost more than the movies themselves. That's how you it's find out about the new ones. True. And you get to hear that Hall and Oates song. So he's also started... I think maybe we had seen this business before, but we didn't really look into it too much. Oh, wow. He, okay, he started the Twitter account for his new business in 2020, and it still has 25 followers. It's something called EGs. And you can immediately tell where... like You immediately know where this idea came from in his brain where it's a thing where you're supposed to be able to license IP through this app. And it's clearly because the Garfield IP was taken away from him. And he's like, oh, there needs to be a way for people to get IP. <laughs> like, it's a problem that only he yeah. has that he's trying to solve, you know? But he's selling he's selling the roadmap to a failed business. Yeah, like he's exactly. selling the recipe. He's selling the recipes mm-hmm. for a business that failed. And then also saying, I can get you these these cool IPs, but he can't. We know that he can't get he these IPs. So how's he yeah. going to help someone else do it? And the one time he did it, he fucked it but, up. Yeah, they didn't like it. This is, <laughs> EG's is your one-stop place for QML or quick mobile licensing, according to Nathan. <laughs> yeah, his website's awesome too, EG's.com. Uh, he has a lot of like pseudo swearing to be epic in his branding. Always lowest prices for licensed stuff. Fuck it. I'm buying from EGs and fuck it spelled P-H-U-C-K-E-T. Later on, he says, cover your arse spelled A asterisk S-E. <laughs> cover your arse. Wear real Spider-Man undies, not fakes. Like what? what's the appeal in that to the consumer? Do people really give a shit when they have like a fake Homer Simpson smoking weed t-shirt? I think they want the fake more a lot of the time. Yeah, for shit like Garfield. Yeah, no, but he like, cares. Who's buying actual licensed Garfield merchandise? Yeah. Besides like eight years. Nathan Mesri. Yeah, true. <laughs> He's got one that says, the death of brick and mortars I have been writing about for five years is at its peak today. And then a fire emoji. That's pretty funny. <laughs> People were talking about that like 15 years ago, dude. Yeah, but he's like, it's funny that he's celebrating that now after his brick and mortar store went out of business. Yeah, he's like, you know what? I hope we all go out of business. Fuck you. Everything he does is such like a a shallow, like Romana clef about his own life, you know? Like he wouldn't tell you specifically that EG's is like a bitter project after he lost the Garfield IP, but in five seconds, that's the feeling you get from looking at the website, you know? (laughs) I wonder how much he can admit to himself that that's why he does this stuff, you know? I don't know. The lack of self-awareness is not what makes all. him yeah. so compelling. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, this dude does not know himself whatsoever. <laughs> he is just... <laughs> it's true. That, no. that image, too. It's, it's, oh, yeah. His, yeah. His, yeah. His press photo, he's got... Press uh, photo. He's all in white, except for a blue shirt with these tiny little tennis shoes and little no-show socks with his ankles showing. And he's crossing his knees, laying on the ground with a yeah, big old so smile, cool. big, perfect little bleached teeth. It's Tiny like puts, little toothies. You know that it's so meticulously crafted. Like he really thought about that pose a lot, but he's not capable of thinking about like his business strategy. <laughs> no, he cannot. I mean, I'm I'm just looking at this uh, USA Wire article about EGs, and it sort of explains what he's doing here. It says, uh, thanks to Garfield and Scooby-Doo, Nathan Masry's experience at Garfield Eats and Scooby-Doo Eats was instrumental in unveiling a massive $340 billion conundrum in the licensing sector. He recognized a crucial gap. There wasn't an effective platform linking fans directly with licensors. Oh, licensees. That's it. (laughs) Licensees, yeah. This disconnect made acquiring licensed products a cumbersome and often expensive ordeal. God. It's I don't know this whole thing is just insane and again yeah Charles like you said it's um it's it's completely petty and personal yeah but th- this is it but this is interesting the the funding a visionary venture portion of this uh it says understanding the scope of his ambitious project EGs and AI Nathan Masri was aware that substantial funding was crucial for its realization. He set it to secure a target of $4 million in pre-seed capital, 
blah, blah, blah. The development of a ready prototype was made possible by the early investment from Fadi El-Mazri, co-founder. That's his dad, right? Yeah, absolutely. It has to be. Yeah. (laughs) Just like with Garfield Eats, though. Like, his dad obviously funded that, too. And that was why it had a location in Qatar briefly. Oh my yes, God. Yeah. I think it was Dubai. And then it, it oh, got, Dubai. Sorry, you're right. It was Dubai. Yeah, it was at it was at a uh, like a food court in Dubai. Yeah, but this this is good. So he's talking about the, like the the journey of EG's the the fledgling startup, and he says, Maz, uh he, I'm assuming he wrote this. He even met and spoke to two of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Funny and funny enough, but says, quote, they are rich. Made for waste, sadly. They don't get it! Exclamation mark. Such people never end up solving big problems in the world, even if you tried to educate them. He even spoke on the phone with Hulk Hogan while Hulk was at the gym. Just like Nathan, I expected the Real Housewives to solve the world's problems, but it turns out they won't. Doesn't seem like he has the answer either, because he's quite a... He is quite a problem himself. Well, there's another really funny quote from him here about... uh, I think he does... He actually tells you the amount of answers he has here. Uh, this may, Maybe the only part in this article I can find too where they're kind of like uh, being passive aggressive about him, where he says, EGs actually solves more than 10 problems with amazing new features. And it's not just an app. But Nathan declined to comment further. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> all right. Nathan like, Masters' narrative certainly merits a Netflix docu-reality series. That's true. It certainly yeah. merits it. I like that fake story about Hulk Hogan. He spoke on the phone with Hulk Hogan while Hulk was at the gym. However, Hogan was primarily focused on relishing his recent legal triumph. And it's it's about Gawker. <laughs> so he called him randomly when he was on the phone, when he was at the gym. And then he started telling him about the Gawker lawsuit, which I don't think he was. Did he give a lot years of interviews ago, about that? Yeah, that was also, what, 2012 or something? Yeah, it's been a long time. Is this guy real? Like, it seems like he's like an AI or something. Like, this article like AI in, for sure. Is he made in Mid Journey? Like, I don't understand. Yeah, it's so weird. Even his picture, like, he looks How like a sim. How does he have Hulk Hogan's phone number? Yeah, like, it's got to be so fake. And also, like, Hulk yeah, Hogan would say him. something racist to him. Yeah. He wouldn't be friends yes. with him. He would think he was Puerto Rican. Definitely. But yeah, Nico, we read his uh, autobiography like a year or two ago. <laughs> and basically, his dad is like a rich Saudi guy who lives in Dubai and Nathan's just kind of like a fail son who has all these ideas, like opening a Garfield restaurant and his dad's just rich enough to keep the, (laughs) you know, each new venture going. So he's just like a fail son who's liberated from all financial concerns. You know, it's a beautiful thing. That's awesome. If opening a Garfield restaurant with your daddy's money doesn't say arrested development, I don't know what does. (laughs) Good call. Yeah. (laughs) That picture's staring at me. I've got, Scroll to get it out. It's so weird. He, he looks like the least trustworthy you could right. possibly look. Yeah. And he's like a Mona Lisa. We're like, he's staring at you from all directions. You know, it's really eerie. Yes. <laughs> it's a thing of beauty. Yeah. His eyes are everywhere. <laughs> it's amazing the amount of personal branding shit he does compared to the actual amount of work he does on business in coming up with workable ideas. Like if he put, if he put yeah. the amount of picture or the amount of effort he puts into taking these pictures into actually like getting a business model that works or talking to an accountant, he would probably have a business still. I'm sure that's what his dad is saying to him. Like the once a year that they talk now, you know, it's just like, Nathan, please come on. It's a classic thing though. If he wanted to run a business that was going to be sustainable, it would be just open a McDonald's franchise and it'll run itself, you know? But the thing is he has to prove that he's like a business genius so he has to have all his wacky ideas that are never going to work. Yeah, it has know? to be his idea. Yeah. Even if that idea is license, licensing Garfield IP and making inedible pizzas. Like. <laughs> I mean, he gets points for uniqueness, you know? No one else was doing it. How long was this restaurant yeah. open for? Well, maybe like a uh, year or something. About a year. About a year. Yeah, he got Do we huge... know anyone that's ever been? Uh, Raina yes, went there. We Raina. talked to her about nice. it the first time we talked about this. <laughs> That's awesome. Did she get sick? I forget. I don't think so. I don't I remember can't... either, though. I don't think she had a Garfuccino, though. I, th- I think that's yeah. kind of like, I got to go through those Yelp reviews again. Maybe it wasn't just the chicken. Maybe it's some unholy combination of like 
uh, unrefrigerated chicken and Garfuccino, you know? Yeah, we got to find, I think we should read the Yelp reviews while we do the stream. Like while you're cooking, we can be like sifting through that, you know? (laughs) I was poisoned. (laughs) You want to go as early as possible in the 25 day cycle. They make the chicken (laughs) once every 25 days. It's on a lunar calendar. (laughs) Yeah. Try and catch it at the start of the month. It's like it's like red tide warnings on a beach, you know. <laughs> like there's certain there's certain days of the month that you can't eat uh, chicken that Garfield eats. Okay, one more thing from the EG's website. Uh, obviously, he made this himself because it's so strange. Uh, he quotes something called Licensed Global Magazine as saying, "EG's aims to be the Amazon of licensing." Anyone can aim to be something. It's, they're not saying that he is the Amazon of licensing. <laughs> That's the best quote he can get, yeah. you know? Imagine having delicious Winnie the Pooh waffles for breakfast. I don't know <laughs> if he can use this logo. Yeah, it's a silhouette of, of Winnie the Pooh. It's a silhouette of him and Piglet. But I think it should sue his ass. It's, oh, you know it's what? The Winnie the Pooh is in the public domain now. That's why he's doing it. I think it. it's one of those oh, things where you can use like the old right. shitty one from the book but you can't yeah. use the new one that everyone uh, knows. Like with Mickey Mouse, you can use the Steamboat Willie design, but you can't use the current right. one. But I think he's using the current one. I don't think you can do that. Yeah. Sue him to oblivion, guys. It's the only way he's going to learn. He doesn't have the muscle to go up against Disney. It makes sense that he's really into branding because he's really into branding. That's all it's about. It's the brand. It's all about the IP, and it's all about for yeah, him building yeah. his his own IP. A hundred percent. In that sense, it seems like he's made for these times. But somehow he still manages to fail every time, you know, like this is a guy like that who yeah. could never succeed more than he could right now in this shitty environment. And yet, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people that have succeeded based on uh, on personality alone, but it doesn't seem like he has much of a personality. So that's the biggest yeah. problem. <laughs> that's a good point. It's like a guy in a German village who has one of the first Gutenberg presses and just keeps publishing crap, you know? Yeah, like, God damn it. it. Like, publishing Garfield recipes. Like this, he keeps, yes, he keeps exactly. publishing Winnie the Pooh, but people don't get it yet. Yeah. He's he's a man out of time. I, I can't be... I mean, we say this all the time about Nathan, but, like, every time we talk about him, like, it's it's so ridiculous. Looking at his recipes as somebody who worked in kitchens for years is infuriating. Cause I knew that I know just from reading this shit that he would have been the worst boss. Like, but I can't hate him, you know? Yeah. I, there's just, something, he wasn't a boss for long. That's the saving grace. No, no, he wasn't. He was a boss to like two people for eight months. <laughs> yeah. And I would like to think if he was a boss for longer, he'd be better than some of the bosses that I had. Just by just by virtue of how insane he is, he'd probably be really easy to tr- to trick into getting like days off. Yeah, you, you could know? flatter yeah. him very or, easily, or a raise. Yeah, he's not as actively evil as most bosses probably are. You know. Yeah, he's just got kind of a Michael yeah. Squ- Michael Scott quality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys think he does a lot of cocaine? <laughs> Or do you think like he has no. never done it? I don't know it. if he's he knows done. anybody I that I think he's never it. done it, yeah. It could really go either way. Yeah, he did. I don't think he has connections. He seems kind of isolated. I think, yeah, yeah. I, I prefer, like, uh, entrepreneurial, hopeful Nathan to the uh, sort of bleak, apocalyptic, depressed Nathan that we've seen a couple times on uh, <laughs> on Twitter, you know? Yeah. Aww. Someone should just give him a show. Yeah. Yes. That is, just that film what he wants. I want to see how he moves his hands. Like, I feel like he could be really expressive. Like, I do need to see some moving images of him after this, I think. If you put him oh, on yeah, Bravo. We, can, we have stuff ex- we can show you later. We've watched a lot yeah. of him. He's expressive, but unpleasant. If you put him on Bravo, you could get him stands. Yes. Yeah, is he true. based in Toronto? We need to get him on like, on, like, the Real Housewives of Toronto or something, which we need anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. So, <laughs> two birds, one stone. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Get it. That's right. <laughs> well, maybe we should move on to another... Uh, branding related shakeup this week pitchfork being yeah. uh, subsumed under gq nice Ooh. back yeah, to cue being the for funeral, guys cue the funeral bell <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who didn't see that coming uh-huh. oh man it's wild it's really the end of an era though it digital feels, media it feels done they're just pulling the cord on that it's the over. whole thing's a joke yeah. it was a yeah it was a potemkin village to sell ads and no one was clicking them yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what we have left, uh, I don't know, more TikTok, social media, Potemkin with ads. <laughs> like, is it ever gonna is it ever gonna get any better than the early days of pitchfork? Um well, maybe when um all the data centers burn down because it's so hot outside. But Yeah, true. Exactly. <laughs> Charles and I were kind of talking about this and and it occurred to me while I was you know, like like ruminating on the death of Pitchfork, that the entire Poptimism thing was just essentially yeah. um, that companies, like once they got subsumed into Condé Nast, they had to sort of provide results in the form of clicks and engagement. So they essentially built like an entire ideology that rolled in like art and identity, uh, to cover for the fact that they needed to just tell people what Beyonce was doing all the time. Yeah. It's like know? a survival mechanism yeah. of if Beyonce gets the most clicks, then we ideologically need to feel that this is the most compelling music in the world. She's you know? actually the best though. She's actually the best, right? Like exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I'm, totally. And I'm not saying that like, uh, the, the, that pop music doesn't have like artistic merit or anything. Uh, but it's just the the idea that they yeah. were like all of the sort of countercultural, um, crazy like creative energy is actually coming from the least countercultural space of all. Oh, like yeah. is it's wild that they sold everybody on that. Yeah, yeah. it's a yeah. shame. Absolutely. It's it's a real shame because like I don't know. I feel like we could have had this potential to have a place that supported like really weird music. And we did. Like I remember when they had their vertical altered zones where they would cover even like more kind of out there music than they were covering on the yeah. web, their website. But then it did like around like, what was that? Like 2014, this poptimism thing happened where it's like, here's why Taylor Swift is actually great. And then you're like, but you know, and then it was kind of like, <laughs> encouraging the sellout in a way where it's like everyone thought, oh, well then, you know, this is, well, this is what's next, no matter what kind of music you make, you know, if you make something yeah. even remotely uh, pop, then under the guise of poptimism, you, it, you could be next, you know? And it, yes. I think we sacrificed a lot of actually interesting music and I, myself included, like I got, uh, I fell into the pressure of this time where it's like, I could have gone a different route and made like weirder music. But at that time, it was like all about this, like, no, pop is actually a really beautiful medium, which I still believe, you know? But I think yeah, that absolutely. they took it, they took it to the extent where it's like, then it was like, no matter what anyone did, if it didn't have this like poptimist lean, it wasn't really part of their their thing that they were working, you know? And so it wasn't as interesting. Yeah, yeah they pushed that very hard. It wasn't part of the like Yeah, I feel like, like super hard. I feel like it was sort of on a delay where pop music took another six to eight years to really live up to that challenge. Like, I feel like Renaissance yeah. was the Beyonce album that should have been talked about the way they talked about Lemonade. Yeah. Yes. Like they were, the same thing with Taylor Swift. Like they were, they popped that a little bit too early and the, the music they were talking about was just very bland. Yeah. There's just totally. not much yeah. there. And then everything that came after it that took it really seriously, um, you know, some like, like hyper pop sort of was a sort of continuation of that. I felt like, you know, like the idea that, and some of that is like legitimately subversive and, and weird. But by that point, everything was so flattened that it just didn't matter. Yeah. Like, uh, like in terms of the platform, but yeah, they just kind of built this thing to cover for a giant sellout. Yeah. yeah. And I, w I like, would say or, it doesn't even seem like they were consciously aware of that. I think it's just convenient to create a worldview that, justifies the thing you have to do to get clicks. Yeah, you know? totally. It gets you That's yelled it. at the That's least. That's exactly it. Yeah. 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 Man. And you saw it everywhere and you continue to see it, which is in, in, in everything, like in um, Coachella lineups, in festival programming, in uh, playlisting, you know, like the sort of dissolution of genre, but, but a sort of return of supremacy of pop music. Yeah. In a weird way. Yeah. And I also like, um, like and the, and the closing the, like really the closing of doors to any kind of new non-established 
artist in a, in a lot of ways. Like I, I would say, I'm not saying like things were better in the old days by any means, but like Nika, like when you or I were coming up, it was possible to use like Pitchfork was very useful to be able to build a career off of. Like you yeah. could maybe not make a maybe not make a living, but many such cases of, of well, people. Yeah, I remember when they who, covered my Mark Richardson reviewed my song like. They're reviewing my songs from like the spoils, which was an, my first album I ever put out. It was like like lo-fi, noisy, textural, um, abstract. Yeah. And um, then when they covered it, I'm like, what? Like it was so crazy. But that allowed me the more than anything, the permission to kind of keep going. Um, and it was super beneficial for me in so many ways. Like, do I think it was perfect? No. Like, am I glad it's dead? Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad because it's also the end. It's the end of pretending like we have any control over what's happening in the industry. And I think like not to go on a tangent, but like things are collapsing at such a fast pace and, but, but all the structures are still there. And so everyone's like still trying to strategize their way around the, the collapse it's like, oh no, it, it's always been like this. It's just like, we're, we're, things are being revealed now or like, oh no, you know, things are still working or, you know, everyone will yeah. kind of justify to themselves how they can still operate in the same way that they always have been the past 15 years. And now this happening, it's kind of like, okay, remember that thing that you, that was like the crux of every decision that you made for the past 10 years, that's gone. You know what, you know why? Cause it's all gone. You know, and it's like you can yes. you can have like Chernobyl's still there, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't that doesn't mean that it's it's still running, yeah. um, but it's there. Well, the thing about well, Pitchfork, nobody, nobody. the thing we talk about the most with them is that great John Coltrane review. And that's only accessible on oh, the yeah. Wayback Machine. Or my Twitter feed because I posted it yesterday. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, but God. that's always going to be like on an early days machine. one. It was an early days one, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. God yeah. Damn. Yeah. Some bad um, reviews. It is important historically. It's like what Lester yeah. Bangs thought of something in 1971. Yeah. Regardless yeah, of the content, exactly. it's sort of like it's got to be there in history to understand it. Totally. Yeah, to contextualize what came after. And, you know, like, Nika, you're talking about like this sort of uh, rapid, like, uh, domino collapse, you know, that's happening in the music industry. I was, I've been thinking about this a lot the last few days is... As I'm in the process of putting a record out and the landscape has changed again since the last record I put out very drastically, um, doing an arena tour, you know, uh, and then booking smaller tour with the solo album what and self-managing, you know, what I'm seeing is like a, it, it's totally reflective of the rest of the economy. It's a colonization by fucking marketing people. So... You know, like if you have a booking agency, you have someone who's worked for 25 years who is terrified that they don't know what's happening anymore. And they're like, how do I how do I find out what's happening? And they their agency has probably been absorbed by a larger agency that deals with sports or like more of the some of the more lucrative sides of entertainment. Uh, and they have to show results. So they're going to hire people who are in marketing. And those marketing people have no idea what they're doing either. So when, you know, when the results go up the chain, those results are, are like now generally like uh, metrics, like clicks, you know? Yeah. And we, we all know that all of the platforms are juicing their metrics. So everyone at every stage of this thing, A, doesn't want to work very much and B, is lying. Yeah. So by the time, you know, it's just complete fantasy. But- the thing that makes me not feel totally apocalyptic about it is, you know, talking to people at record labels and some booking agents whose job it is to still provide like the material thing that makes musicians and labels and booking agents money, which is tickets to shows and record sales. So, you know, that is still something. I, th I think this other this other giant shell around it is just going to implode. Yeah. Like, yeah. But at the same and time. And we'll be... And, Sorry. And we'll be back to 1999. Yeah. You know? I mean, I certainly hope so. But then at the same time, it's like all the venues are getting bought up by Live Nation. And, you know, yeah. I just canceled my 
I just canceled my, I just fired my North American booking agent because they wouldn't book my solo piano tour in the US because they said there wasn't an interest or they were afraid of taking a risk on a show they haven't seen before. Um, and as someone that's been that is- a musician for 15 years on a professional level, it's, it's pretty um, fucking, if I can say that, uh, disillusioning to realize that I can't even do the thing that I'm here to do. Um, because at least in the States, because people are so terrified of doing anything, anything that isn't like an EDM DJ or like a band that's viral on uh, TikTok. Um, so it's it's a yeah. weird time. And then like record sales are still happening. I mean, they ebb and flow, but also like the production times. I don't know how they are this year, but they've been notoriously really late. Um and so it's kind of strange. It's really strange times. But like I would say and add that it is like almost a relief because I feel like we're going to go back to this era when um, what, what what would that be? Like almost like before the 80s maybe like back when like music was a little bit more of a um, a labor of love you know? Uh, yeah. and I think, you know, in the nineties and with the, like the grunge wave, um, and with MTV and everything, there was a big economy around music. Um, but that's changing. Uh, the only thing is that we need to be prepared and our audiences need to be prepared that that's changing and then find other ways of supporting, um, the ecosystem if the general economy isn't going to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I th- I think your touring, your touring issue, like, I mean, I know a lot of people have had the same issue with touring. And I, I think that also is, a, it was bad before the pandemic, but it's a post-pandemic thing where basically these, like, you've been on tour in North America before. You know the venues that you're going to end up at in yeah. certain cities, yeah. right? Give, give, give or take 500 or 1,000 tickets, you know, you know what venue it's going to be. All of those venues are being slowly folded into Live Nation and you know, various monopolies. So when your booking agent is booking a tour, they're literally doing less work. They they have, you know, they have the venues, they have, they are plugging you in to a stream of bands that are touring. And if you present them with something that is not, you know, in their mind presentable at those venues, then they just kind of glitch out. And it's, it's funny because I, I was thinking about this today. There are venues in America that would do a piano show. Oh, totally. <laughs> and the, and I, like I listed there, a million. There are art centers. Yeah. There's fucking cultural cultural centers. There's festivals. Like it does. It's, it's just that some talks. of these people that <laughs> some of these people, and I guess it was people that I was working with, either are too lazy and don't want to do the work or they're so insulated in their one micro hype genre that they can't even fathom a world outside of um, Bowery Ballroom or whatever, or you know what hey, I mean? Why, or why like, not both? Why not? Why not lazy and completely blinkered and? Oh, and but know? that's I feel like that's happening on such a wide level. People are burnt out, and I think the people that have been working the past fifteen years in this, at least because that, that's as long as I've been going um, in this kind of era are tired. They're getting older. They're not seeing the returns that they used to and their old ways of working aren't working and they're too complacent to try to think outside the box. So we're going to really have a weird adjustment and transitional period within like the structures that are still there and the people that are still working within them. Nothing is working the way that it used to, but they're still going to keep trying until things like Pitchfork close down where there's kind of like, oh, it's really, it's really different now. And it's like you either go find yeah. another job or you retire or you figure out how to make it work. I mean, that's where I'm at, you know, as a musician, as now a mid-career, a, a, a spry 35-year-old mid in, in my solidly mid-career phase, which I you know, never thought would come so young. But uh, here we are, you know, it's pretty weird. <laughs> you got to embrace the mid-career. That's a good point about Pitchfork. Yeah. Though, uh, just like it is kind of a wake-up call to certain industry people, maybe. I hope so. And of course, so. I feel bad for the writers who lost their jobs because it's like a wake-up call to them in a bad way of... You just can't fucking write anywhere anymore. You know, like writers are getting fired no matter what kind of writing you do. And I just feel so bad for like young yeah. writers, especially. But that's why my ass isn't doing that shit. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just not yeah. worth the yeah. amount of effort. Yeah. You're yeah. Not putting into it. that shit. Yeah. No more written words, only spoken from here on out. 
There's such a small yeah. niche of shit that, that companies word. want, especially when they're yeah. bought yeah. out by um, by venture capital. Like they, yeah, mm-hmm. you just end up having to revise stuff so much and craft stuff that's like it's a uh, it's only about SEO, but yeah. then it also has to be yeah. a full article. It has to be like it has to be good. Because they're they're caught in this limbo where the the content still has to be good, but also corporate saying just make it SEO or we're just going to turn it into AI. Yeah. So you've yes. got that knowledge yeah. when you're writing that it's like it's kind of pointless, and also no one's clicking on it because no one clicks. Yeah. Digital yeah. media. No one cares. Links. Yeah. 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 Nobody gives a shit. I, I mean, I definitely see a correlation between this sort of slavering doom saying that is almost like expectant for around writing, like all these pieces from the last 12 months about how AI is either going to revolutionize or annihilate, uh, you know, like an entire field of work. Oh, yeah. And and that, so there's that. But then but but I was thinking today it, it, it's it's really analogous with the sort of slavering doomsaying that was going on during the pandemic when uh, people who were writing about the music industry were saying, this is the death of live music. All music will now happen in this digital space. Mm-hmm. Uh, the digital space is, you know, it'll reach more people. There was a, there were a lot of like weirdly, weird tone in those articles, like, like doobie, but also like looking forward to it. accelerationist, I guess Definitely. is the word for it. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. and it's funny that that for music, at least, I don't know about for writing, but for music that didn't, that didn't happen. And they, it was almost like people were disappointed that, um, you know, I, I kind of feel that like management companies were disappointed that they couldn't just be like, all right, guys, every week you're going to play a big show and we're going to make digital money from question mark and then yeah. uh, I will make some profit, yeah. you know? Well, that's the thing. It's such conceivably it's such low overhead. And that's why people are also getting really lazy is because, you know, during the pandemic, there was a lot of stimulus, but also a lot of like you know, it was really, it was, there was a realization that you could do things with much lower overhead doing them online. And so now people are like, oh wait, we, and you know, also the expenses post pandemic just skyrocketed. Whereas touring now is so much more cost prohibitive than before the pandemic. Um, I mean, the, just the incentives to do good work right now. I mean, especially when the economy is tanking and people don't have as much, um, you know, extra income for, for things like this. It's, yeah. it, it, it doesn't surprise me, I guess I'll say, but yeah, the acceleration is tinged to like, everything's going to be online. Well then also like, I think we are going to see a, um, an, an extreme influx of AI instruments. And, um, you know, I, someone just sent me a video of this person singing in their bad voice and then they could upload it to like some AI generator and it sounded like they were screaming even though they were whispering in the recording like to that extent where you can change the like the quality of your voice with the, with this um technology you know and that's what I think it's going to really change music and uh so many of the opportunities that like musicians had like for um placements in TV and movies um, I think library music oh, and AI generated music is going to be much more used. So we're going to see extent, a, that already yeah, a lot happened of stuff. though. Like, w- like any TV show now doesn't use real songs. It's all knockoff songs of real yeah. artists that sound like shit. Right. So like yeah. in that sense, it's that's already been hollowed out and this is just a further. Yeah, it's automating out. that process to yeah. you know, reduce overhead trash, even further. You know? <laughs> yeah. Which is why the only person, <laughs> the only people that actually will survive at this point are the artisans. And that's kind of where I'm leaning yeah. towards. And it's like such a relief. Cause it's like, Oh cool. I get to just focus on the craft now because the craft is the one thing that can't be taken from me. And it's like, yeah. you know, there's something really satisfying about realizing that there is no gaming the system. There's just the work and it's just about doing really good work and like building a community and, and also like using music as a tool for healing and for like helping people through these really uncomfortable, confusing times. Like, Music as a healing yeah. modality will be so much more important now that um, music as an entertainment modality is kind of being covered by like the computers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that all four of us have talked about before. And I think we all agree on is that that's like the thing you can be optimistic about is knowing that you can find your niche because like ultimately there's still real people who want to be a part of this, right? Like the, the community yeah. still exists out there. You just need to find your portion of that community 
and just create it any way you can. And luckily things like Patreon mm-hmm. still pay well. So it's like, there's still some ways to do this stuff, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 But it's going to be, and people will, Sorry. Uh, I was going to say people will, I mean, I always say this, but people will go to a place and watch you perform for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, yeah. not at them, but for them. I, I, I think that's a big distinction that is, I think there'll be a big shift in that. Um, as you know, not, maybe not in the pop world, but in our world, as, as people get winnowed out, mm-hmm. like it, it is going to be performing for an audience, not at them. Yeah, <laughs> totally. By that, yeah. do you kind of mean like play the hits, you know what I mean? Or what do you mean? I mean, I mean, presenting, presenting something that is, uh, open in a way you know and then is not you know, like even if the music or the performance itself is kind of confrontational or abrasive or uh you know energetic and it exists in a conversation a with it. the audience it exists yeah, in a, yeah, I got that's you. it yeah. yeah yeah it exists uh, yeah you you would go into it with uh w- with a kind of open heart both the audience and the musician. And I, I think that's like, that's exciting. Yeah, totally. I don't, I don't think you can't replicate that. So, and I think too, that's what the good corners of the internet cultivate as well of like, when you build a following online, that's the kind of thing people want from you. They're interested in, I don't know with E1, it's like, they want us to develop the lore of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I yes, feel like they're they a part to, of that sort of, they want you to drive yourselves more and more insane. Yeah. And take <laughs> that's them true. With you. Yeah. I don't know when it comes to that stuff. I'm mildly optimistic. The thing is, I know that the day will come when Patreon will be ruined as well. You know, like every site is going to be ruined by these same motherfuckers. You know what I, I mean? I hope it's our fault. Yeah. I at least want to be responsible for it. Sabotage. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You got to throw, you got to write an episode that is the wooden sandal that fucking gums up the works of Patreon, you know, and <laughs> frees us all finally. <laughs> And then you'll be you'll be sending cassette copies of E1 to uh, select thousand people in the United yeah. States and abroad. I think Patreon instead should become a farm, and we should all just join the farm, and we should just become like a communal farm. Honestly, that'd be pretty fun. I mean, and then you know, I like this. Idea. I yeah, out with you guys every day, you know, instead of just I'm, talking on Discord. Well, totally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like enough of this website. Enough of that's just all the page, the Patreon, like the the Patreon creators, as they call us, and the patrons themselves. It's all join a farm. We could have a pretty big operation. You know, we could provide for each other and maybe for others. Yeah. You know, we could build a little venue. Yeah, and, not um, an arena. Definitely have, not an arena. An amphitheater. An amphitheater. Yeah. We're amphitheater. just. Yeah. A stone amphitheater. <laughs> I will. I am putting my name in the hat as the director of marketing for the arena because I don't want to work very much. Perfect. Um, I was gonna say. I I would like to. I would like to sell these shows to the commune. You know. I will be I the guy that buying. brings the lion to the Colosseum. <laughs> you have to go get it from Africa, and you have to be with it on a boat for like six months. Aww, aww. So Dan will bring Hozier, and you'll bring the lion. <laughs> Exactly. Well, yes, we found another silver lining, you know, <laughs> I do. Again, I do think overall there's certain things that will continue to function well. It's just everything. Again, it's just like where you look for things has changed the most, I guess. Right. Like in, yeah. in terms of music discovery and everything, like Pitchfork is a good example of that, of there was a time in like 2007 where it's like, if you go on Pitchfork, you're going to find something new. And like, you know, it's just changed where you find stuff and it's just less centralized, which is sometimes depressing, but it opens up different opportunities for different people. And like, I don't know, is it better? Probably not. But is it the worst? I don't think so. You know, has it become yeah. more centralized or less? I think because in some ways is decentralized, but finding news about like Taylor Swift is everywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Because like the centralization is also like the absorption of all of these entities, you know, and it's like things are so centralized that they're like now beyond decentralized. It's it's accelerationism. It's decentralized, but yes, it's decentralized, but everything is exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. It's It's like like a one cell. It's like if there were. Yeah, totally. That's a good point. Because like the the proliferation of AI generated bullshit on Google is exactly that, where one real site writes an article about Taylor Swift, then 50 AI sites copy it five minutes later with even the same photograph. Yeah. And now there's just like a sea of the same shit, you know? 
Where it's like, at least yeah. in the past, it's there called, were more blogs and stuff. So it, it, in fact, in the yeah. past, it felt more decentralized, but now it feels more yeah. centralized, but there's nothing there. Uh, but podcasts are sort of the equivalent of those blogs, right? Like there's plenty of stuff like what we're doing right now. Uh, like, I don't think that stuff disappeared. It's just like everyone's in their own little corners, how I feel about it. I don't know. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about Taylor Swift more. That's how we get, that's how we build up the money I, for the Patreon I learned. Form. I learned the hard way that you say one thing about Taylor Swift in a public forum and you will get lambasted for six years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. Yeah. Can't talk about Taylor Swift. Can't talk about BTS. No, especially in regards to like their labor practices or whatever. I think they're both fine. <laughs> you can you can say that one of your enemies said something bad about BTS or Taylor Swift, though. That's good. Yeah, that is that's, good. That's a power, it's a powerful tool. Yeah. Flip them. Yeah. yeah, Alex, I think you're right that we're in an era when the biggest pop stars are fine. You know, like they're not offensively terrible, but they're definitely not artistically interesting. It's like, yeah, those, that's fine. You know, have that's you what guys I think ever, when I hear BTS or whatever. Have you guys heard, uh, this is unrelated, but no, it's related. Have you guys heard the Enrique Iglesias, like real singing videos that have been coming out? Cause he's been going on a, like a, a cash grab tour no. and he's been singing, um, ostensibly without auto tune. And, um, it's fascinating. Not only how bad his voice is, how bad his technique is, but also how completely utterly like swagless he is like he has absolutely no stage presence whatsoever and he's selling out all these um arenas uh but it's it's pretty fascinating so yeah i would say that our stars at least are like these days are like better than someone like enrique iglesias (laughs) yeah yeah you know i'm I'm seeing him like come into the, the the specter of like contemporary performance and i'm like man that dude used to be everywhere and now i see why he disappeared yeah no swag <laughs> no he was swag. in the right place at the right time but doesn't really have the juice to keep going no juice yeah he's he's basically jimmy rogers playing uh she'll be coming around the mountain before <laughs> yeah. johnny cash you know? <laughs> totally yeah that's funny <laughs> he might as well be james dolan at this point yeah, yeah. There you go. Bringing it full circle. <laughs> Maybe on that note, yes. we should wrap it up. But Dan, you should uh, shamelessly plug yourself and we could uh, play the episode out with your new single there. Woo! Oh, yeah. I got a, I got a new record coming out on Sub Pop Records. Uh, Back Home at Sub Pop. Uh, it's just my name. It just, it's just called Beckner. With an exclamation that. point. With an ex- I love that so with much. With an exclamation point. <laughs> Um, I'm pretty happy with it. Um, and yeah, it was produced by uh, Randall Dunn, who also made uh, Nika's last Yeah, he, he and I made Archon together. Real spiritual brother. Yeah, yeah. So uh, pre-order that shit and um, just, just help a brother out here, you know? Yeah. Help a brother out here. And Nika, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me. It was fun to... Uh, you know, be a fly on the wall of the Fortune Kid Enterprises.
Faces of the world.